We're beginning a series of messages today that will take us almost to Thanksgiving. Uh, it's called The Promise, you know, stories from the Old Testament. We're going to be walking together uh, through uh, the Old Testament each week. Uh, and so today I invite you to join us on that journey. Uh, whether you're at First Norfolk on Kempsville or First Norfolk on Volvo, uh, take this moment and open your copy of Scripture uh, or uh, your phone app or your iPad app to Genesis chapter 1. It should be easy to get there. No, just kidding. Genesis chapter 1, it is the first chapter of the Bible. So if you get to the table of contents, uh, take a couple of pages over, and there you are, Genesis chapter 1. While you're turning there, what I want you to understand, I think what God wants us to see today from Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, and we're going to kind of scrunch all that together today, what, what I believe God is saying to us today is that, uh, that through uh, the record of, of the beginning, uh, His record of the beginning, God uh, created the world with a promise of intimate fellowship, a relationship between Himself and you and me, uh, His creation humanity. Uh, God created us for fellowship with himself, and, and it bleeds through the pages of Genesis 1 through 4. Uh, but as we're looking at this, we see God's point of view and how the world came to be. We have God's point of view that he passes on to us so that we might begin to understand um, the, the nature of creation. Now, let me break it down just a little bit. Genesis 1 tells us the story of God's creation in terms of his majestic power. Uh, God, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and everything was void and empty, and out of that emptiness, God made what we have here today, okay? That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2 repeats the story of creation, but it does it on a relational level, uh, where, where Genesis 1 uh, talks about God's majestic power, uh, Genesis 2 speaks of God's personal intimacy in relationship, especially with humanity. In Genesis 3, everything changes. And Genesis 4 tells us the result and how that, uh, that change is lived out in generations to come. As we look at Genesis 1 through 4, I, I want you to think in terms of this. Um, Y'all know what these things are, I hope. This is a plunger, and this is duct tape. We live in a world where a plunger and duct tape are necessary. If you look at the headlines of any newspaper, you get your Google News alerts, uh, you uh, take a cursory glance at the... At the uh, uh, news stations, those that actually report news these days, if there are any left that do that. Um, that was a dig, and nobody laughed. I, uh, uh, you remember Walter Cronkite? Man, I miss him. Anyway, uh, when, uh, when, when you look at the shape of the world today, um, you see that we are a world that needs a plunger. Now, you can air quote that, you can bracket it. This is a metaphor for other things that you begin to understand. 
We live in a world that needs a plunger, and, and we have a lot of people with a lot of plungers trying to set right what is so wrong, and it's not fixing anything. We live in a world in need of duct tape. I love duct tape. Duct tape is one of those, I lost my plunger, duct tape is one of those uh, instruments uh, that I use in order to um, help someone like me uh, who is mechanically challenged fix things, at least for the short term, uh, and be heroic. Uh, I can put duct tape on a lot of things that I normally could not fix. And I'm not saying I fix it long term, I'm just saying for that moment I've got some duct tape and I can put a duct tape. I used a pair of fishing waders. You know, I, I, I go wading in streams and those streams are cold. I had a pair of waders that I used for like two or three seasons and I always carried duct tape with me because they had sprung a leak in several places. But anytime I felt a leak, I'd, I'd, I'd find where the leak is and I'd throw some duct tape on top of that and it was Almost, almost watertight. Not hardly, but almost. Duct tape's a wonderful thing. You can uh, go to my car and you'll find duct tape in use. You can, you, you can go to my house and you'll find duct tape in use. Duct tape is a wonderful thing. But, but it's used because there are things that are broken that need to be fixed. Um, when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God designed the world in such a way that duct tape and plungers were not necessary. See, the world was created in a way that was good and beautiful and perfect. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, he looked at his creation and he said, it is good. At the end of day two, he looked at his creation and he said, it is good. Day three, he looked at his creation and he said, it is good. Day four, he looked at his creation and he said, it is good. Day five, when he made the birds and the bees and the fishes and the seas, he, he said, it is good. Day six, when he made man and woman in his own image and likeness, he looked and he said, it is very good. But then everything went very wrong. So as we look at this passage today, as we look at this first story, we, we need to understand that the promise that is, that is apparent in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4 is the promise that God desires, yearns, and works for fellowship. That's how he made us. So let's get down this road a little bit. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created everything. Now, this is not really a statement of intricate cosmology. And if you don't know what cosmology is, you can look it up on Google or Wikipedia. It's different than cosmetology. Um, cosmology is a study of the universe and its origins. And, and, and really, when it comes to cosmology, Genesis 1 and 2 is not an intricate, um, detailed declaration of all things cosmological, but it is a statement of the universe's originator. It is a statement that God made everything, that God created everything, that there is nothing in creation that was not made by him, that does not find its source in him. God created everything. He separated the sky from the, uh, from the uh, 
from, from the land and the, and the heavens, from the, the waters above, from the waters below. He separated the light from the darkness day and night. He, he separated and, and, and made the, the plants and, and dug out valleys and, and, and uh, the Grand Canyon and built, pushed up mountains, the Great Smoky Mountains or the Rocky Mountains. He, he made everything. God created it all, including humanity. As we look at this, we need to understand that there, even in the day that Genesis was written by Moses, even, even in that day, depending on your dating somewhere in the 1000 B.C. range or 1500 B.C. range, when Moses put this story to paper, God was inspiring him to tell a story that Israel could use to, to show the other nations that their one true God the Lord God, Yahweh, is the only creator. That all other cosmologies are wrong and this one is right. We need to understand that. And we live in a day and time where there are a lot of different definitions of, and descriptions of how the, the, the universe came to be. Richard Dawkins is one of those smart cats that looks at the universe, has looked at the universe, and, and he even said that when you look at the intricacy and the beauty of the universe that it would seem as if some divine mind had put everything together, but Dawkins says that's not the case. It's just by chance. It's like taking a, a Swiss watch, uh, a watch with, with a, a precision of a Swiss watch, and, and taking it and, and smashing it into a thousand pieces and putting it in a paper bag and shaking it together for an hour and rolling it out on the ground and expecting uh, that watch to be put together in its perfect place. Now that's what Dawkins says really happened, that that kind of chance is what created where we are today, the, the, the ability to think and speak, your ability to sleep right now, and it, <laughs> or laugh. It, it's, it, Dawkins says it's just chance. Other cosmologies say it's an amalgamation of other gods, some, some forces, uh, supernatural perhaps, or, or gods uh, in the plural that, that combine together all their, their wicked forces or good forces, and they combine together and with a great clash create the universe. And the universe really has no purpose other than a provision of of uh, uh, just uh, maybe even a mistake, according to some cosmology. All these different ideas are are, are chance, or or just some some divine mind actually in the force, but not really personal. That's not what we read in Genesis one and two. Genesis one and two says that God, the real God, the only true God, He spoke, and the universe came into being. That God is distinct. He is not a created being. He is the creator of all things. That he is majestic. And, and his majesty is displayed in the, in the resplendent, ordered diversity and beauty of his creation. That, that God is powerful. Uh, in him, all the forces of the, uh, of the natural world find their starting point, whether it's the inescapable gravity of a black hole or, or the incomparable heat at the center of a star. All those forces, all those uh, forces of the natural world find their origin, their source in God. He is powerful, but God, who is powerful? 
who made everything out of nothing. This God who is powerful is also the God who is good. He made it and he said, it is good. 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 It is very good. The God who made that which is good is the God who can only make good because there is the absolute absence of evil in him. The reason what God touches is good is because he himself is perfect good. So when we look at creation as it originally was, God made it good, including you and me. Can you imagine? That's that's the Adam and Eve song that we were listening to earlier. That you say that you would see me for all that I am and still say that I am good. It's because we were made in the image of God. Today, as we look at how God created everything, I, I want you to understand a couple of things, and, and, and this is a quick kind of summation, but if you want good, then you need to let God do it. If you want good... If you want your life good, then you've got to go to God who is the source of life and submit yourself to him and find that good. See, so for all of us, and far too often, we take our duct tape and we try to piece together a life and say it's good, but it's broken still, and it's fractured still, and and it's limping along, and it's not good, not the way God intends We're trying to manufacture life, and God says, if you'll just turn to me, just come to me, just depend upon me, I will make it good. God, don't create no junk. So if we want a good marriage, stop trying to duct tape it and submit it to a living God. You want satisfaction in your Emotions and your relationships. Stop trying to duct tape it. Submit yourself to the living God. You want want satisfaction in your work. I mean, God created us with this purpose to till the ground, to to have dominion over uh, the earth and subdue it. He, 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 He gives us purpose. If you want to have purpose in your work and satisfaction in your work, stop trying to duct tape it yourself. Submit yourself to God who makes good. See, part of our problem is that we aren't submitting to the design that God has made. Do you realize that Genesis 1 and 2 teach us about not only the origin of the universe, and teach us about the origin of marriage? Do you want to know why marriage is between one man and one woman for life? And that is what marriage is? Anything other then that is not marriage. Do you want to know why it's that way? It's because that's God's design. And he designed it good. And we get off track, no doubt. But even when we get off track, we shouldn't try to duct tape it. We should try to submit ourselves to the living God and get back in his design. God makes it good. Our problem is we're trying to make it good without God, and it just doesn't work. 
God created everything. The second thing we see in this passage is that God created everything. He created the birds and he created the mountains and he created trees and, and he created uh, snail darters and he created owls and, and, and he created chimpanzees and roosters. And then, verse 26 and 27, things change. Not his creative work, but things change because of who he creates. Look at verse 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created everything, but God made us in his own image. That's different. I want you to understand that we, as followers of Jesus, and what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2, is that we must be environmentally conscious, but not environmentally enslaved. And what I mean by that is that God has given us the responsibility to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. That that means that we have been given a responsibility from the living God to care for his creation so that it flourishes. We must be environmentally conscious, but not environmentally or ecologically enslaved. You see, a tree is not as important as a human being. A fish is not as important as a human being. A fish is not made in the image of God. A rooster is not made in the image of God. A chicken's not made in the image of God. A mule is not made in an image of God. An Alabama Crimson Tide fan is not made in... No, I'm sorry. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. No, look, listen. Listen. We need, we've been given a responsibility from God as his image bearer. Now, made in the image of God means that we were made with a capacity for friendship with God, for fellowship with God. That's what made in his image. He's put his stamp on us, on our souls, so we live uh, with a capacity to know God, with a capacity, as, as Adam and Eve did uh, regularly in the Garden of Eden, to walk with God in the cool of the evening, uh, Genesis 3.15. We, we have the capacity to have fellowship with God. That's how we're made. We are made in the image of God, and we are image bearers because we're human. Okay? A human being is an image bearer of God. And it doesn't matter their religious preference. It doesn't matter their race or ethnicity. It doesn't matter where they're from or where they're going because they are human beings. They are made in the image of God. And so we, re- we show respect for that image bearer. It's a necessity of who we are. But when we start showing more respect for a a tree in California than we do an unborn child, we've lost our minds. We've lost it. Hear that baby? Made in the image of God. God puts his stamp of of priority and passion upon every human being. 
He values you. You're made in his image, but you're made in his image so that you can live a certain way according to his design. Do you see the commands he gives Adam and Eve? He says, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to, I want you to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Later in Genesis 3, he says, you're going to have to till the ground. There are assignments that God gives us that, that we fulfill as his image bearers, that, that we are called to, uh, to, to give leadership so that the whole world of creation flourishes for the glory of God. That's our design. When you work, you're not just working to get a paycheck. You're working for the glory of God. That's what an image bearer does. There's a function to fulfill. God has made you in his image so that you might know him, so that you might have purpose in how you live your life. And and here's here's the message that I would say about being made in the image of God. We find our greatest delight not in living life our way, but in living life according to his design. We get off track. We get in trouble. We get messed up. We get, we get uh, uh, overwhelmed with um, despair and hopelessness when we decide that we're going to live life according to our design rather than God's design. One of the problems that we have here in this church is that we've got a group of people in this church. I'm included in that group, and so are you. Where we decide, I want to do A, B, or C, even though God says, I want you to do D. And we ignore the D and go for the A, B, or C. And we wonder why we're so distressed and filled with despair. It's because we're not following God's design. As one who is made in the image of God, given the assignment to fulfill the design that God has made, here's where our delight comes from. It's not in doing life the way we want. That leads to disaster. I want you to to hear this. God set the universe in order and populated it. He gave humanity purpose and freedom and limits. He said you can eat of anything in the garden except for a tree. One tree, one fruit from one tree. He said you can eat anything else but not that tree. He gave purpose and freedom and limits. He provided community for humanity, intimacy with himself, and in the midst of all the glorious provision of paradise in the Garden of Eden, the most catastrophic crash erupted into, into the good creation that God had made. Sin. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat from, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave it to her husband. And immediately their eyes were opened because they had sinned against God and they took out their duct tape and they started wrapping up fig leaves to cover their shame. And it didn't work. And God came walking along in the cool of the garden. He's called out their name, and they're hiding from the one that they used to have intimate fellowship with. Why? Because sin destroys everything except for God's grace. 
I want you to hear this, and, and, and I, I, I don't have to spend a lot of time on sin because we know its consequence and its crash, but this is the fall. This is what set uh, uh, the, the headlines that talk about wars and, and rumors of war and illness and disease and, and pestilence and, and earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and, and hurricanes. All of this happened because sin entered in Genesis 3. Verse 6, do you not understand? This is what set this universe in a cracked, shattered status. This is what destroys our relationships. This is what destroys our marriages. This is what destroys our life. It's sin. Sin destroys everything. The wages of sin is death. It destroys everything. Instead of partners in marriage, Adam and Eve became opponents in competition with one another in Genesis 3. Sin destroys everything, and the consequence of that sin has ongoing results. When I was... uh, when I was in uh, uh, junior high, high school, uh, probably seventh, eighth grade, I, I threw the Dallas Morning News, and that meant that I got up at four o'clock in the morning, four thirty in the morning, folded newspapers, and then went and delivered them. On, put those newspapers in my bike and my basket, and got on my banana seat bike and drove down the road and threw those newspapers and. It, depending on what day it was, I'd get home either at, at 5.30 or 6 or 6.30 or 7 or 7.30 on Sundays. And, and then I'd put my bike up and go back to bed or take a shower and get ready for school. And, and so that was every morning. And, and there was no break in that. My brother also had a newspaper route. And he and I'd get up at the same time. I'd always get up a little bit earlier than he uh, because he, you know, he's grouchy in the morning. And he was. He was very grouchy in the morning. He was, he was a cantankerous kind of person in the morning. And, and, and it, it was so sad because it was my goal in life to make him smile. It was my responsibility in those morning hours to make sure that he had laughter in his heart. And he would wake up and he would be so surly and mean, filled with vitriol and venom toward me. And I would respond with joviality and dancing and singing. I had not read that, book, that, that, that uh, verse in Proverbs that says, He who greets with a happiness in the morning before morning coffee is a sinner against God. I hadn't read that yet. And so I was, uh, I was man, I, I, I really had a lot of fun with Brett. And usually we would, tow, uh, you know, we would tussle a little bit, and he would uh, throw stuff at me and yell at me, and, and, and it was okay toward the end of the time because then we would load up our bikes, and then we would be gone in different directions. Well, this morning, it was a summer morning, we, the whole family was awake. And normally, nobody was awake except for Brett and myself. We were the only ones awake, and, 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 but this time, the whole family was awake, and Brett was uh, uh, folding papers. I was folding papers, and mom and dad were getting ready because we were going to pack the car as soon as we were finished with the newspaper route. We were going to pack the car, and we were going to drive to Tennessee and get an early start. So we're folding papers, and I'm extra excited because we're going to Tennessee, and you know, um, I love Tennessee. And so we're folding papers. I'm extra excited. Brett is extra surly. 
He's, he's extra, you know, cantankerous and hateful and mean. And so I, I just decide I'm going to do my best to make him happy. And, 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 uh, and, and so I, I, I sing a little bit and I dance a little bit and I laugh a little bit. And he is throwing stuff at me. He's shooting rubber bands across the room. He's, uh, finally, he picks up a whole stack of papers and he throws them at me. And, and that sets me off. And then we get into a tussle. We get in a, we get in a tussle. Uh, normally known as a fight, we're fighting, and Brett is uh, Brett is is punching on me, and I'm punching on him with Christian love and grace, and 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 uh, and then and then uh, Dad w- must have looked out the window and saw us in the garage fighting, because he busts into the garage and he opens the door, and and he, I mean, and when he opens the door, I can rem- I, I remember the vision, the the scene. Uh, Brett had my head uh, hair in his hand. That's back when I had hair. He he had my hair in his hand, and I had his uh, hand in my mouth. I was kissing it or something. I don't know. Uh, but that's the scene. Dad comes out in the garage. He sees this, and he kicks us inside the door, uh, and and he sits us in the den. When when we get in the den, here's my mom. I kid you not. This is the gospel truth. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel. Isn't that great? Kid you not, that's exactly what she was doing. In Genesis 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel, and it's a consequence of sin. Fractured relationships that, that are born from the toxic fruit of sin. Cain and Abel... Um, in such conflict that Cain kills his own brother, Abel. That's what sin does. Sin destroys everything except God's grace. You look in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 15. This is in the middle of a curse that God has given to the serpent or Satan himself. And and this is what God says to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says there's going to be enmity between the devil and the seed of the woman who is the promise of God's grace, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise the heel of the Savior. This is a promise of God's grace from the very beginning, that even though our sin has destroyed everything, God's grace promises rescue. I want you to cling to that this morning. That God's grace promises rescue. That we don't need duct tape any longer or a plunger any longer. God has brought his rescuer to us. Jesus Christ. And even though it would bruise his heel, even though the rescue he provides would mean his death on a cross, he would reverse the curse that sin had brought, that Adam and Eve had inaugurated And he would provide rescue for all who would by faith cling to him. Through Adam, sin and death reigned. Yet through Jesus Christ, the gift of grace overflowed to sinners like you and me. Through Adam, condemnation 
came to humanity, but through Jesus Christ, justification came to sinners. Through Adam, death reigned supreme, but through Christ, life reigns. Through Adam, we were made sinners. Through Christ, we were made righteous. Apart from grace, we remain fixed in the depravity of our condition, corrupted utterly by sin. But the promise of God's grace brought to us by Jesus is that Satan will be crushed. Death will be defeated and we will be forgiven and have new life. Jesus has come to our rescue. Sin destroys everything but God's grace, but God's grace is powerful to overcome our sin. Today, on this side of the cross, we can taste the glorious provision of of Christ's sacrifice for sinners like you and me. On this side of the cross, we can can taste his grace and experience the rescuing love that he has for us. But we must come to Christ. We must cling to Christ. We've got to let go our duct tape and our plungers. We've got to stop trying to make life good for ourselves and start going to the only good one who can make life for us. Today, my prayer for you and for me is that we would experience the full measure of God's favor, His grace for our everyday life, that we would cling to Him. Some of you are here today and you're followers of Jesus and you have been followers of Jesus, but somewhere along the line you decided that you would pick up your duct tape and your plunger and you would start trying to do life according to the way you think you ought to do life. Guys, I do that too. Make no mistake, there's nothing good that can result out of that. And today, God is calling you as a follower of Jesus to lay down your duct tape and your WD-40 and your, and your plunger. And lay them at the foot of the cross and cry out to the living God, Oh God, have your way in my life. Some of you are here today and you're not yet followers of Jesus and you are utterly lost and destroyed because of sin. But you see that Jesus has come to provide forgiveness for your sin. So today I invite you to come to Christ and by faith cling to him and see his death on the cross as payment for your sin to purchase your forgiveness. See his resurrection from the dead as the new life, the new creation that you need. See, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today, I pray that all things become new for you.